Hello and welcome to Complementary Training Podcast, episode 10. Our guest today is Sam Robertson. Sam Robertson is a senior research fellow at Victoria University and also a senior sports scientist at Western Bulldogs in the AFL. I have followed Sam for quite some time and his work in predictive analytics slash machine learning was and continues to be quite influential on my work and understanding. So I took this opportunity to pick Sam's brain regarding topics such as use of machine learning in sports, especially injury prediction. If you are interested in up-to-date information regarding sports science and the use of machine learning in injury prediction, give this episode a go. I would like to thank our sponsor Smartabase for making this episode possible. Enjoy the show. Smarterbase is a truly unique athlete data management solution for pro teams, colleges, Olympic sports, the military, performing arts and research. Smarterbase encapsulates the ability to integrate all forms of data from many different sources of technology such as GPS, AmigaWave, EliteForm and many others. It has unparalleled reporting features, offering the user access to any data in the system within three clicks of the mouse. Most importantly, it is a customizable platform that you develop based on your needs and workflows for your data. With support teams based in the USA, UK and Australia, Smarterbase is in over 150 organizations in more than 10 countries. If interested, email info at fusionsport.com. Hello and welcome to Complementary Training Podcast. Our guest today is Sam Robertson. Hi, Sam, and thanks for joining us today. Hi, Mladen. Uh, thanks for having me on your uh, on your show today. Awesome. Let's start with uh, giving the listeners some some background. So, who is Sam Robertson, and what is your current role? Well, I'm in a fortunate situation where I uh, I hold a hold a dual role. I, I'm a senior research fellow at, at Victoria University um, in Australia. Uh, which allows me to, uh, mainly in the area of sports science, which allows me to um, undertake research like a, a normal academic uh, and, and supervise PhD projects and the like. But the second part of my role is, is as a senior sports scientist for the Western Bulldogs, which is an Australian football league club. And so this allows me to, to manage the sports science program uh, that we have at, at the club. Uh, we're in the top level of, of Australian football. And so anything relating to sports science is, is basically part of my, my role at, um, at the club there. And that creates a nice synergy with, with the type of work that we can uh, publish and also prevent, present some, some really nice opportunities for our PhD students to get involved in, in the operational side of the club. So working practically in high-level sports makes you use a bit, I would say, advanced but uh, advanced techniques in analyzing data uh, so my question is um, based on your opinion what's what's the difference between statistical or machine learning versus the traditional stats and you're the one uh, wearing two hats so publishing papers and doing uh, I would say practical work with the teams that need need insightful data something they can actually use in practice yeah it's a good question I, I think a lot of people have confusion around the differences between statistics and machine learning I think the best way to, to look at both disciplines is that they are uh, both sub-branches of, of what we call data mining, and we might use statistics in data mining, we might also use machine learning as, as well as some other other techniques. Uh, in a sense, with statistical analysis, we're, we're looking at, um, I, I guess it is a good way of looking at a more traditional approach to analysing data. Um, often we're, we're looking at hypothesis testing. Uh, we're looking at, although there are non-parametric methods, we're largely looking at parametric statistical techniques such as ANOVAs, uh, t-tests, 
uh, generalized linear models, these types of techniques. And we're often also interested in um, theory testing. So, um, and it might also extend to, to sample testing, um, uh, all of these types of disciplines that we, we associate with statistical analysis. Machine learning, on the other hand, is um, a lot of the assumptions that we need to fulfill with statistical analysis, uh, such as sample size, uh, assumptions of normality of our data, they don't really matter so much with respect to um, our, these non-parametric methods, such as, as machine learning. And, and so really what we're trying to do with machine learning is look at non-linear, uh, well, we're trying to find patterns in data. And if these are non-linear in nature, we're able to still find them, um, where Conventional analyses are normally, uh, particularly statistical analysis, is normally linear in the way that it, it treats these problems. So, you know, they, they can be compared to two techniques, no, no doubt, but at the same time, they are basically assessing different things as well. So, in a nutshell, I think machine learning is becoming more popular because uh, it is easy to pick up and, and solve these dynamic nonlinear questions. Uh, and also, it can be done without as many rigid assumptions as we see in statistical analysis. But uh, I also see researchers or uh, practitioners doing mistakes, uh, and you're probably familiar, uh, because they, they become really, really, I would say, loose with the analysis, just because of the fact they are not using traditional statistics. So they still break a lot of, um, I would say, rules of, uh, of machine learning and predictive uh, analysis, and one of which is... Uh, not having a holdout data set. In this case, the model might overfit. They, they do not check if, if there's actually overfitting in, in the model. Uh, so I'm talking about, uh, in this case, predictive versus retrodictive analysis or, or having a foresight versus, versus a hindsight. So, for example, uh, injury, injury prediction. So some of, the, some of the papers published are actually not predicting any injury. They are trying to explain the mechanism so that probably an area of the traditional stats. But as a practitioner, we are interested in actually predicting the injury. And uh, not, many, not many practitioners actually use this, um, I would say, holdout technique or cross-validation technique. So what, what's your opinion about this issue, I would say? I think you, you're absolutely right in some of the, the, the comments that you make there. I mean, because this is a fast-moving discipline, a lot of people are looking to get involved and, and use it. And again, some of the, um, as I said, there, there are less assumptions that perhaps we see in statistical analysis, but there, there are still assumptions that need to be met or, or and there's certainly um, approaches that need to be taken in order to ensure the, I guess, the goodness of fit of a model. Certainly machine learning, we, we're interested generally, um, we're obviously interested in a lot of things, but particularly interested in predictive accuracy or uh, explanation accuracy of our, our model. And um and again, as, as you mentioned, because uh, these techniques are so good at understanding nonlinear behavioral patterns in our data, it's quite easy to, compared to statistics, for example, to come up with a model that explains things or explains your data really, really well and really, really accurately. And uh, again, when that data doesn't or when that model doesn't translate to a new data set, we get something which is called overfitting, which you've, you've, you've mentioned already here. So for example, uh, we may be able to build a really nice model that, that predicts or explains injury in an uh, individual really, really well. The likelihood, particularly if there's a number of different predictors or parameters, variables, whichever word you like to use, involved in that model, um, the likelihood is that is not going to perform as well uh, on another individual in, in predicting their injury. And in fact, it may not even predict a future injury for the same individual, again, uh, that well. And so some of the ways that we get around that in machine learning is, is through cross-validation. Now, 
you mentioned one technique uh, with respect to that, and that, that technique is, is obviously a holdout validation, which is where we, we test the, um, the performance of our model on, a, on a, um, what we call a, a training set of data. And we hold out some of our data, so we, we don't use that in the analysis to, to build the model, and we use that remaining data to, to test, I guess, the validity of our, of our model. Now, an even better way is obviously um, testing it on completely new data altogether, which would basically be assessing the generalizability of our, of our model. Um, now, there's a lot of debate around, um, you know, holdout validations in machine learning, uh, fold cross-validation, uh, which is a form of internal validation, is also quite popular. And again, these are types of debates that are being had at a really high level of machine learning practitioners. So, again, uh, I don't think it's uh, necessarily you know need a need to be really really critical of people um, who are trying to employ these techniques in sports science, but they do need to be aware of uh, of of these types of considerations when they're building their model and and, and continue to educate them themselves in that area. And I, I think probably the only other thing I would add at that, that point is uh, which you mentioned earlier. Um, is around this difference between a retrodictive or or predictive models or explanatory versus prediction. And I think in the literature in sports science, we see a lot of misuse of this word predictive when really a lot of the, the papers that are being published in this area are really just explaining how an injury has occurred in, in, in a, using previous data rather than providing predictions on new data. And... Um, yeah, it only, only takes a very quick scan of some of the literature um, in sports science journals to see how this, this term prediction is being uh, misused. Thanks for a very insightful answer. I, I'm pretty sure I couldn't have done it any better than, than yourself. It's a quite good uh, uh, explanation. So let, let's switch to, uh, I would say, practical uh, applications of using, again, terminology issues, machine learning, statistical learning, or predictive ana- analytics. So, yeah, what, what would be the practical, I would say, applications and what will be the problems uh, you are trying to solve in, in high-level sports using um, machine learning? I think any problem that you're facing in applied sport that you think could behave in a, in a dynamic, unpredictable, non-linear fashion could be solved um, by machine learning. And we've mentioned injury already, and that's, that's certainly one that's receiving some attention. Uh, I guess with injury, we're often trying to predict it based on repeated measures of data on, a, on an individual. And, and that can be something that, that machine learning algorithms don't tend to handle so well. They, they don't have an ability to handle repeated measures so well in their, in their structure. Uh, but that's certainly a way, um, uh, a way in which machine learning has been used in the field and also some papers starting to come out in that area as well. Uh, I think another one uh, where it could be really useful is, is um, for predicting outcomes or, or player performances. Uh, another another way in which it's been used in a performance sense uh, may be around um, in other areas. Sorry, in other areas related not to performance. So anywhere across an organisation, such as um, predicting ticket sales or, or anything that a football club or a, any sporting club in general would be interested in um, in finding some kind of prediction of in order to, to either organise budgets or select a team. So. Really, anywhere, anything that you can think of in, in team sport, uh, machine learning could be used. And I suppose one area that we're using it in at, at the Western Bulldogs is uh, around um, understanding the types of training loads that, that athletes undertake. Um, so using data from sensors, we we obviously get a lot of information from sensors relating to, to players that are training and also their, their weights and gym sessions. 
And so we, we use that information that the um, we obtain from these sensors like accelerometers and, and, and GPS units to classify the type of movement that athletes are undertaking. And um, and we know that, that, for instance, the way that one athlete squats is very different to the way another athlete squats. And so through using machine learning, we can we can classify the time that an athlete's spending in each of these um, these movements to better understand their load uh, in, a, in a better and a more sophisticated sense than perhaps uh, a session RPE value will give us. How about the, I would say, the new new techniques in machine learning such as, uh, you know, deep learning or natural language processing? Is, is there any application in sports for those uh, methods? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that's a, a really, it's, it's not super new. I mean, we, we know that those these deep learning approaches have been around for, for 20 years or so now, but in, in sport, they're, they're extremely new. Um, well, in sports performance, in any case. Um, I know colleagues at the Australian Institute of Sport are certainly using um, deep learning to uh, to assess video for, for swimming technique, for example. Um, we we aren't using these these techniques at the Bulldogs yet, um, or or um, we, we're only using a small amount at, at the university as well. But but certainly um, for those that aren't aware, deep learning basically is is uh, a representative learning approach to data. So its advantage it's over uh, traditional, say, machine learning is that it, it's able to to take unstructured forms of data into performing a classification or a prediction. And so raw forms of data like we see in vision and video, these types of data that don't have an inherent structure to them um, can be used. They can be uh, Information can be extracted from them um, without human intervention and also without uh, having to sort that data into a, into a format that would be um, that you may see in a spreadsheet, for example. And so it, it's opening up really new um, areas with respect to supervised and unsupervised learning. So, for example, um, trying to classify different types of movement like I gave in the, um, in the previous example or, tr- or trying to, to learn things from, from video and, and, and pictures in particular. With natural language processing, we, we are, I mean, this is an area that, that most people have capacity on their smartphones um, uh, through whether they have an Android or an iPhone, they, they are probably using um, some form of this on an almost daily basis. Certainly we're using this in a way where we, we're trying to convert um, quantitative data or, or, or information that we're obtaining on our athletes into something that's qualitative in, in nature. So an athlete um, can be provided a report or, or can provide um, a report can be provided to the coach based on a, this massive volume of data that they're getting um, through converting that data, that text data uh, into, um, sorry, the, the quantitative data into, into text or, or something like that in, in a language that's, that's, um, that's understandable for the athlete or the coach. And so both of these areas, I think, will continue to um, become more popular in sport. Um, probably the main thing holding them back at the moment is um, uh, is computing uh, prowess, both in, in, in the hardware that, that sporting clubs have and also the expertise. Uh, and probably the other, other area altogether is that uh, I think a lot of people in sport maybe uh, are not even aware of these techniques yet. Yeah, exactly. So um, one, one practical question is a lot of, a lot of clubs uh, nowadays are using GPS uh, monitoring uh, you know, collecting the the session um, activities and, and particularly drills activities. And as you mentioned, one of the initial um, tasks would be to uh, classify or cluster the the activities in, in maybe different categories. Can you can you tell us more about this uh, 
this method and uh, maybe some other methods that could be useful for for coaches and analyzing uh, GPS data? Yeah, sure. I I think most people that have used uh, GPS software for their analysis will be familiar with um, the types of measures that are are traditionally used in this area. So obviously, if we go back to the the early days of GPS, we we could measure the distance that a a player or an athlete has covered in a a training session or a match. And we can also look at at measures, uh, uh, relative measures, such as um, the intensity of the running that they've they've done as well. Um, But the issue with these is uh, that they're very discrete measures. And uh, assessing the, the amount of high intensity running a player has done in a session can be very misleading. A player can re, uh, reach the same results in, in two completely different ways. They, they may do sporadic high-intensity efforts, running efforts through a session, or they might do them all towards the back end or front end of the session. So it's really important that we, we try and analyze that data in, in both basically, basically the time domain and also the frequency domain. And so if we're undertaking classification of movements, we, we extract features from the raw signal of the, the GPS rather than just take uh, the metadata which which most of the, the commercial providers will uh, will give us. So the way we also use that data from there is we we extract features from from that raw signal. Um, some of those would be very common features like the mean of the the amplitude, uh, the minimum, the maximum, but also um, some percentiles and and some other um, more sophisticated measures. And and then we run some um, machine learning classification uh, algorithms on that on that data to. To look at how well we can, uh, I, I guess, differentiate those movements from one another. That then provides us a really, um, a really sophisticated way of, of measuring exactly the, the proportion of time that a player or an athlete has spent uh, undertaking certain movements. And potentially more importantly, we also understand the magnitude of, of those movements. So, uh, as far as the analysis approach, we we certainly um, this is not we, we've certainly published work on this in the Journal of Biomechanics. Um, it's not particularly new the methodology. It, it's been used um, in ecology. It's been used in physical activity before in in, in many papers. But certainly we we feel like it's it's the best way forward to to understand not only training load but also um, probably move forward on the injury prediction um, question as well. I suppose what comes next is is uh, whether the sensors that we're, we're obtaining the data from are in the right location um, and whether we can add more to the athlete or, or make them move them into a different position without making them too cumbersome or, or getting in the way. And uh, I think we're at a stage now where the analysis is, has well and truly caught up to the hardware. And so what is probably next is that we, we're making smaller sensors that can be um, uh, placed on the body without um, interfering with the athlete or, or their uh, participants in team sport. So that's probably where we need to go next. You already mentioned that machine learning methods are pr- pretty much struggling with uh, repeated measures, and that, that's something I, I stumble upon as well. One of one of the problems there, um, mainly trying to, I would say, predict injuries from training load, uh, similar to a um, to a banister model. Uh, so, can you expand a little bit about this? particular uh, problem, or problem of predicting uh, uh, performance uh, from uh, time series of, of training load. How can machine learning help in this, uh, in, in this regard? It, it's a really good question, and I'm, I'm not sure I've seen it really well answered. You, you can certainly, there are two schools of thought. Certainly, if you're looking at a, at a group-based approach to uh, explaining or predicting injury, uh, and, and you're not accounting for repeated measures, um, there's no question that you're going to overstate um, the ability of your model to, to explain or predict injury. Uh, and uh, for example, if, if you have a, a thousand days of, of data 
um, on each athlete, uh, on, a, on a group of, of 40 athletes, for example, in a, in, a, in a training squad, and they all go into a single model which assumes independence between each of those days of data. Um, you may get a, a nice a nice model um, with with some some really really small standard errors in your coefficients. And um, the reality is that there's correlated responses in your data. So there's going to be a correlation between how your athlete um, responds to training day after day, even the, the, the amount of training that they do day after day. Some, some guys will want to train more than, than others. And, and certainly um, their internal and external loads, uh, which uh, they're, going to be, they're going to be correlated. Just about every measure that they're giving you is going to be correlated from day to day. So if you're not accounting for that in your model, you're going to make incorrect assumptions or, or you're going to make overstated assumptions in the, in the very least. So one, one, so one such way that... Yeah, sorry, wait, go, sorry, go ahead. Now, I just wanted to say that one of the, uh, the techniques I've, I've, I've been playing with is to do these rolling windows of, uh, you know, rolling averages and maybe rolling standard deviations of the last 7, 14, maybe 28 or more days and the ratios between those, but easily from maybe having five um, training load metrics that you use to quantify training load, you immediately get maybe thousands of, of um, really, really correlated um, features that you need to analyze. And that, that, one, that was one of the issues uh, I've been personally um, struggling with. Absolutely. And I think uh, feature selection is, is not a perfect science, really. Um, it requires um, sometimes simulation in, in development of your model, uh, and certainly, um, again, even in machine learning, if, if there is extreme um, or even strong to moderate to strong correlation between some of your features, um, again, you may may fall into the same trap of of overstating the the um, the quality, I suppose, or the accuracy, sorry, of of, of the model. And and so, uh, you know, that, that that's a that's something that takes time when when you when you're developing such a model, but. But certainly, um, if we move from from statistical analysis to to machine learning approach to these same same types of questions, provided there's enough data, um, uh, one approach can be to assume independence between the the observations and allow the algorithm to pick up these nonlinearities that you may see between the observations uh, within a particular athlete. Now, I've seen basically no no literature on on that, uh, but certainly an approach we've we've used in the in the past that. Um, because we're using only one model on one athlete, that we will build that model over time. Um, but another approach would be exactly what you just mentioned, to, to look at rolling windows of, of time. Um, it's very difficult in, in professional sport, as we know, because uh, a two-day, a three- or four-day rolling, rolling window can, can really give you misleading results because we know that players have days off, and so they don't train at all on some days. And... and um, you know, a traditional statistical analysis technique will, will treat that as missing data, but the reality is it, it's not, not really missing data. We, we're just not training on that day. And, and I think that's where we've tended to simplify things in the, in the past by, by looking at just weekly values or just monthly values. And, and the reality is it's, um, it's we're fitting the data to suit ourselves rather than the other way around. And I, I think um, without being overly critical of, of, of people in the past, we, we need to be better than that and we need to come up with new ways to handle this data. Yeah, you, mentioned, you mentioned missing data and that's actually the, the question I wanted to ask you. Uh, uh, is a lot of data we, we get from athletes or um, you know, in sports in general is a, a bit untidy, if I, if I might use that word. So it might be um, a lot of missing, uh, missing data and um, in some of the analysis I did is... And pretty much this is 
across the domains as well is uh, maybe 80 to 90% of the time I spent cleaning up the data and, uh, and merging and combining the data sets. And then the analysis was, you know, pretty, pretty quick and easygoing. Uh, so what, you know, what can you say regarding the, these types of data and what can practitioners do to make pretty much their life easier or data scientists life easier, and, you know, skipping the missing data and things like that? Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's three main, main areas. And, and the first one is, yeah, most practitioners, um, working in sport are, are not thinking with a research goal in mind. And they typically think that analysis, uh, you know, modeling at a, at a higher level only really is done in research. But the reality is, uh, there's nothing to stop. In fact, I would strongly suggest that, that people should be looking to be as rigorous as they can with their analysis in, in a professional sports setting or a high level sports setting as well. And so I think, Collecting the data with with the end in mind is is really important, and um, uh, if for people that are even aren't working in a research environment, probably the second thing is I don't know if if sports science, particularly recently, has has questioned enough the type of data they're they're collecting. I think um, sports science uh, has has grown dramatically in the last um, decade or so to a situation where we're collecting data on just about everything. But I, I'm not sure we've always stopped to to question the validity of some of those measures. And actually, um, perform what, you know, really a data reduction exercise to, to, to look at the reliability of certain data. Is data going to always have missing values associated with it? Is the validity of that data weak? Um, does it require a lot of burden on the practitioner and the athlete to collect that data? Um, if you're getting a lot of yeses to, to answer, as answer to those questions, then potentially you, you should look at not collecting that data anymore or collecting it in a, in a better way. And so, um, as, as you say, uh, when we when it comes to analysing that that data, it almost becomes um, pointless in in some cases because the data is in in such a poor poor format. And so I think uh, what we've tried to do, at, at, I guess, at the Bulldogs, is, is come to a situation where um, the practitioners and the researchers working in the space have an understanding of the types of questions we're looking at, and that allows them to um, to know that when they are collecting a particular metric on a player, um, they know it's going to be used later on down the track. Um, and it, it kind of creates good habits for them. Speaking of uh, injury prediction, uh, that's currently the hot topic. And it was a hot topic for, for, uh, for a while. Uh, but now we are trying to predict injuries from uh, uh, training loads that athletes are um, uh, doing. So one of the, yeah, one of the issues we, 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 we stumble upon is that uh, um, using this holdout validation. So we develop a model using a season or two seasons of um, uh, GPS wellness uh, data and injury data. And then we built a couple of models. Uh, we checked the fit of the model. It was pretty perfect, judging by um, um, the common metric uh, called the area under curve. You'll probably know. Once we tested the model on, on the holdout data set, for example, on a season we didn't use to, to train the model, uh, the model was really, really bad at judging you know, the, the performance, uh, sorry, the injury prediction. Those lines of, uh, you know, not having, uh, whole da- data sets, we also stumbled upon, um, issues such as, uh, you know, different types of injuries, uh, different locations, um, different, uh, as you already mentioned, moderators or, um, mediators such as, um, you know, wellness and, and things like that. So recently, uh, th- there's a, a big, Research, be, you know, currently being done on, on injuries, uh, but I see these discrepancies with things that are being published in terms of, uh, 
you know, analyzing injury uh, as, as a time missed rather than a specific type of injury or a specific location of the injury. And again, mentioning what we mentioned earlier without any holdout data sets. I know for the clubs, it's pretty hard to have a holdout because they probably need to, you know, save a lot of data to actually validate the model. Uh, so I guess one of the workarounds might be some project on a, on a, I would say, a league level where all the clubs collect the pretty much same data uh, in a in a same standardized format for maybe a couple of seasons, and then researchers might have much much more data to actually uh, build a model, but also validate the model to to see the predictive uh, performance of the actual model. You know how you know in your in your in your work, how did you guys sort this out? And if you did, it's a. I mean, you you make a, a number of really um, important methodological considerations with the modelling that um, I'm not sure any anyone's getting completely right at this point in time. Uh, I, I probably don't have have the answers to all of those. Uh, you know, as we be, as we start to become more specific in the model in the the types of injuries that we're trying to to model, um, we know that the incidence of those injuries become smaller. So, again. Um, if we're trying to predict an injury on a given day um, as a function of, um, of the types of training that an athlete's done or, or what they've been exposed to, the null model of, of that injury or the, the amount of days we're predicting an injury not to occur is, is really, really high. So um, a null model might be up at around 99.9% of, of days there's no injury. So trying to get that day specifically predicted or even the week where that injury will occur is is really difficult to do particularly if you're trying to look at a specific type of injury and so all of these considerations that you mentioned um, then are things that that need to be taken um, or need to be looked at and factored into into the analysis and and even the the, the format of the data itself so I, I like the idea of, of having a a database uh, around a league, and and I'm sure that that one day a league will be brave enough, and, and clubs will be brave enough to do that in in, in order to help the um, the injury ep- epidemic. But again, th- th- we then have the the issue um, of, of of comparing apples with apples. How do we compare uh, athletes uh, against themselves? Uh, do we need to convert the data to to some other format in order to to allow for comparability across uh, uh, across the, the teams? And again. They're things that can be worked through, um, but again, they, they're going to need to uh, see some collaboration across leagues and clubs in order to make that happen. Um, and then with respect to, to the holdout validation, again, it, it's, it's really difficult. There's, there's no question, mainly because a lot of the time when practitioners will see uh, an athlete starting to become tired or through subjective means or, or through some, some kind of wellness rating, um, training will be adapted as a result of that. So... We're in a sense, um, we're seeing a constant intervention or, or constant, um, this constant intervention from, from practitioners into the type of training that athletes are doing in a sense is, is ruining our data that, or our ability to kind of uh, look at what would happen if, if we kept pushing an athlete more and more, um, with respect to his training loads or, or, or kept dropping the training loads off. So it, it's really difficult to, um, to get that uh, actual purity in the, in the model to be able to look at that. And of course, um, athletes turn over as well. We we know that the average career in the Australian Football League is, is only a few years. So, um, you know, the list will change, or the, the squad of players will change dramatically over the course of a few years. So, it they're, they're all they're all difficult considerations, and um, and I don't have all the answers to them at, at this stage. But we've um, you know by considering as many of those as as possible, I'm, I'm confident we can continue to 
to get better. So it's it's certainly more than just using the latest and greatest machine learning or deep learning technique. It's it's also um, uh, you know really basic methodological considerations we need to look at. As you as you mentioned mentioned a lot of clubs actually um, sometimes they they hire someone externally to uh, collect the data. Um, uh, rather than make uh, on the spot changes to training, as you as you said, it, it corrupts the data. But uh, I guess it's not really ethical to um, if 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 you are expecting injury and you see some some patterns, you you might you want to make a coach aware of to to stay quiet so it doesn't corrupt your data. It's it's a, a bit. I think it's called a Lucas critique uh, in the literature. Uh, not sure. You correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, of actually. Doing the parallel analysis and also doing uh, interventions based on, the, on that analysis, and that corrupts or corrupts or, or reduces the power of the model. Uh, so I guess it's also a moral thing of uh, of if you're already seeing something that you probably you know you want you want to make coach aware of something that might might happen and the coach might do an intervention. Should you should you do it again? It's it's a it's a it's a good it's a good actually it's a really good point. What what can the sports scientists do in this uh, particular scenario. I guess it needs to be needs to be predefined uh, by a role. Are, are you actually doing interventions, or are you just actually collecting the data? And I know some of the some clubs are actually only collecting the data for a, maybe a year or two, and then they start to do uh, interventions based on the data. So, what's your experience in in this particular regard? Yeah, I've, I've seen both approaches used, and I, and I think uh, there's there's positives and negatives of, of each. I think this is probably where we've, we've started to see um, the, these proxy measures used um, uh, by, by clubs and um, in order to, I guess, make the most educated guess or, or estimation about the likelihood of, it, of a player being injured or being unavailable to train or play based on are these, are these commonly used other measures, uh, particularly around you know, wellness scores um, or, or scores on musculoskeletal screening tests and using them to... Um, um, I guess uh, as proxies for risk uh, risk ratios or risk measures, even though maybe they they haven't really been validated for that purpose, it, it comes down to a philosophical question really for the organisation uh, around risk. Um, are you willing to to be overly conservative by using some of these measures, uh, which means that your athlete probably isn't going to get measured, but you're going to continually pull them out of training. Um, which is it's just going to have its own implications for respect to them being deconditioned, or, or are you willing to, to kind of keep pushing them along and um, knowing that that maybe there's a, a chance they'll be injured, but but we really don't know. So it it really comes down to the, the philosophy of the organisation, I think, about you know whether they whether they're conservative or whether they're they're open to I guess guess pushing the, the pushing the boundaries a little bit because um, yeah, a lot of the time as we've discussed, we we don't actually have the answers about whether if you take this athlete to, to this amount of load in a, in a given week or a given 10 days, um, they will be, they have a 80% likelihood of being injured. That, that, that hasn't been done well to date. And um, as, as you said, most of it's been looking back at the data rather than looking forward. So it depends on the philosophy and also who are in those roles. So um, yeah, whether it's a high performance manager or, or um, director of football or director of um, performance, um, you know, traditionally those people come from a medical or a physiotherapy background. Um, they may, by nature, normally be more conservative than someone coming from, from say, sports science or coaching. And again, I'm generalising, but um, uh, it depends a lot on that on the person or the persons in those roles. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. Um, 
yeah, for to slowly finish up the the interview, um, I'm pretty sure that uh, that listeners are quite interested in uh, maybe getting some tips regarding starting up the sports science or in this case data analysis uh, department. Uh, what what steps would you suggest to to the clubs to take uh, regarding starting this type of um, department? Yeah, I think it's it's firstly important that that you're really clear on on what you're trying to get out of um, uh, out of upskilling yourself. So it depends on whether you're a student, whether you're um, an undergraduate student, or going into research, or whether you're a practitioner, and and also how much time you've got on your hands as well. I don't think there's always a need to to be really strong in statistical and machine learning theory, but certainly you have to have an understanding about. Um, why and why you why you use a certain approach and why you don't use another, um, because ultimately, as we've talked about, there there are mistakes that are, are being made. So um, whilst you don't need to, to be able to write note pages of notation, you certainly need to understand uh, the basics of, of different approaches. But essentially, there's a number of open source um, options out there. Um, um, I'm sure a lot of our uh, a lot of your listeners have have, have seen. Uh, Audacity and Coursera, and, and, and there's access to, to open source university level courses in machine learning and statistics, which are some of which are quite applied. But it depends on what you're you're trying to get out of it. So um, there, there's programming, which we haven't really talked about today. But uh, again, most machine learning and, and statistical analysis becomes a lot easier if you do have a programming language um, under your belt, whether that's R or, or Python and Octave or, or whatever it might be. But again. Um, that that's going to be something that that like any like learning any language is going to take some some time and and considerable effort to to get good at. So yes, there are plenty of things you can even though it's extremely limited. There's a, there are plenty of things you can you can do with Excel, and certainly a number of different practitioners will will upskill in that area. So it depends on on how on what level you want to go to. Uh, I've seen some really good high level practitioners have a really thorough understanding of machine learning and statistical analysis, but they can't run anything themselves at all. Um, but because they have an understanding of it, that's that's all they need for their particular role. So um, I guess that sounds like I'm I'm not giving a really clear answer, but it depends on. Uh, I think the best best place to start is is ask yourself how you're going to use the skill set in, in your role or your, or your future role. Yeah, thanks a lot. You you also covered some of the good resources for for knowledge and um, such as Coursera and all the free courses online, which I also highly recommend, and I also highly recommend learning our language if you have the time. Uh, so that's a quite quite useful um, uh, u- useful tool to have under your belt. Um, speaking of, there's a there's a always a, a I would say a fight between R and Python, uh, and I'm interested in hearing your opinion regarding what language to learn. <laughs> it's uh, I'm not sure I'll get involved in that debate, but uh, for the record, I I, I use R and not, and not Python. I, I'd like to um, I'd like to be better in Python, but I, I haven't had the the time to. To do that, uh, I certainly see the advantages in, in the machine learning, um, and sorry, probably in deep learning as well, um, in, in Python. And so maybe, uh, maybe one day I will, I will upskill in that area. But I think the advantages of, of R is, is a really long, um, standing, well established community in which you can be supported, um, online uh, with other users. And I think it's a really a great advantage. And, and the language is, is, is quite easy comparative to, to some others. So, yeah, I, again, I'll have to sit on the fence, but I, I am I am biased towards R because I, I do use it. So yeah, pretty much same as uh, myself. And uh, and for the last question, I wanted to save this. I'm not sure um, if you're familiar with the work of uh, Nassim Taleb, 
particularly the Black Swan and uh, Anti-Fragile. Uh, mm-hmm. So pretty much that work is critiquing uh, predictive analytics and, and trying to predict things, mostly because we believe that things are um, bell-shaped, distributed, and we can use risk analysis for things that are uncertain and unpredictable. To be honest, it's good to have you know m- multiple viewpoints on the world, and um, but I'm getting this conundrum. Um, I'm trying to solve, in this case, Nassim Taylor saying that, uh, that some, some of the issues in the world, and this might be related to injuries in, in sport, might be really, really unpredictable. Uh, but on the flip side, we want, to, uh, we want to make use of some of the data and try to predict things. So <clears throat> I'm not sure how you, if you're familiar with the work of Nassim Taylor, how did you solve this conundrum yourself? I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a good point. I mean... It comes down to what you think solving a problem actually is. And I was talking to someone about this the other day. Uh, when we have a, a prediction, obviously, there's a, a corresponding confidence interval with that prediction, um, which, which shows us how, how, well, how confident we are in that prediction actually coming true. And I think you know, we need to ask ourselves, how confident do we need? To, let, let's say we can, we can solve the injury prediction problem we it still doesn't tell us how confident we need to be in that prediction before we we decide to change an athlete's training so if i if i think my my athlete is a 50 percent likelihood of um of being injured uh, how does that help me make a decision about whether he should train or he or she should train or not versus a 30 percent uh, likelihood they're both fairly high numbers given um that an athlete doesn't get injured um you know more than once or twice most athletes are in a, in a season so it's a really again it's a it's a question about um, uh, about how we answer that and I think the second part of that relates to um, uh, mainly around the resources that we have so if we're spending a lot of time collecting data for the sole purpose of, of predicting injury and we're not getting anywhere we, we, we're still getting injury after injury um, is that a good spend of our time what could we be doing instead and and so I probably think those two questions are really more relevant for, for, for sport because, um, you know, we don't have the resources that a lot of other disciplines do to, to continually throw personnel at a problem like this, if, particularly if we're not solving it. So, yeah, and again, I think almost every organization will answer those questions um, probably differently. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. Um, and you already mentioned this problem with, um, you know, having probability of injury and uh I would say a lot of practitioners, coaches don't get this probabilistic thinking. So you might get in a situation of sports scientists having, having a say to, um, give information. For example, oh, there's a, you know, 30% probability of this guy is going to get injured. Uh, and he actually does get injured. And the coach might say, yeah, but you told me it's 30%. So, uh, yeah, the predictions are not perfect. And, uh, particularly coaches need to understand that it's more, um, again, it's probabilistic, and even if if it's a one percent chance of getting injured, the athlete might actually get injured. So, and also, I'll, I'll come back to Nassim Taleb, um, his idea of um, actually the the cost the cost of event happening uh, rather than a probability of the event happening. And his his suggestion is to rather you know rather than try to predict, uh, is to actually try to prepare and. I might say that a lot of clubs now are pretty much paying more attention to trying to predict things rather to preparing uh, better. I would say to for, for in this particular case for sport sporting injuries. 
Yeah, so not not sure if you if you want to add something to this Nassim Taleb conundrum. I, I think um, I'm not sure. I, I hadn't heard that actually around um, the cost, and I think that's a really a really good good point. And I, I think that's the cost of a, of an event occurring, in, in, in particular an injury, is really um, something that's maybe not not considered till after the fact. So I, I quite like that um, as an extra consideration. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the one of the techniques I've used in, in when I was modeling uh, the injury data is to uh, when analyzing. Um, fail positive or, or, or sorry, uh, false positive or false negative. So pretty much the error, uh, committing error. Um, I gave two different weights. And in this case, if, uh, if you say the injury, the, the athlete might get injured and he does not, that's a cost of one. Where if you say the, the injury is not going to happen and the injury actually happened, I gave, uh, maybe 20, uh, the cost of, uh, of injury, uh, again, it's it's a it's a personal. Uh, I would say uh, you you do it subjectively. You can you can play with with the weights, uh, saying that uh, uh, saying that someone is not going to get injured and he actually get injured costs you more than saying that someone might get injured and he does does not. So I play with some of those weights, and it gives you idea of what will be the best. I would say threshold, as you mentioned. For coaches, so if you say fifty percent, mm, is that a you know is that a good or bad? What, what should we do with that? So by analyzing the data in this particular way of giving costs to different scenarios, uh, we might get, I would say, some some of the suggestions what what the threshold might be for interventions. So not not, not sure if if you guys did something uh, similarly, but uh, I guess this is quite understandable for. Coaches and practitioners. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that, again, like yourself, had discussions around, and and um, it does it does crop in uh, crop up in in, in our corridor conversations. But um, certainly, uh, I think this kind of um, uh, this trade off between risk and reward is is something that um, it has been talked about a little bit in the literature, but certainly not uh, from the statistical sense in sports science. So. Certainly, um, would you know recommend that maybe you maybe you go and publish it. I'm sure it'll be a well-cited um, document. Maybe get a PhD from that as well. So, <laughs> yeah, good. It's a good tip. Um, uh, yeah, thanks a lot, Sam, for taking your time to expand on on machine learning topics in sports. Um, just for our last question, uh, where can listeners find more about you and your work? And uh, what's what's uh, you know, next coming, uh, what are you currently working on? What can we expect in, in the journals? Yeah, sure. I mean, um, probably the best place to find me, the only place I'm really active at the moment is, is on Twitter, which is, yeah, just Robertson underscore SJ. Uh, um, that's probably uh, my main way. I, I disseminate my information and also anything else I think that might be of interest in the, um, the sports science or sports analytics uh, community. Uh, at the moment, working on on really um, with a, a colleague, Professor Damien Farrow, around using machine learning to better understand how humans learn in sport. Um, so really taking a dynamical systems theory approach to, to some of the analysis that we're doing. So that's something I'm really excited about at the moment um, and hopefully really starts to uh, push this area of skill acquisition forward in, in team sport. Um, so that's that's probably the main one at the moment. Uh, some of the other work we, we're doing is, as well is is more uh, around applications of, of different machine learning methods. So um, in team sports, which maybe have, have fallen out of favour a little bit. So 
in particular things like um, association rule mining, um, uh, which you know Roger Bartlett wrote about uh, 20 years ago in in Journal of Sports Science, um, and and kind of bring that to life a little bit more. And probably the the, the last one is um, is really getting uh, ready and excited for this this um, this new onset of, of spatiotemporal data, which we we hope to get on all teams in the Australian Football League moving forward, and hopefully into into 2017. Um, and so that will really help us to move beyond um, these discrete measures we've used in analysing performance into things that we've seen um, uh, done in, in, in sports like football worldwide uh, through, through companies like Opta. Um, and, and so once we start to receive these, these X, Y and, and time coordinates for, for the player on the field, it's really going to open up a whole um, new world of possibilities for analysis in Australian football. Yeah, that sounds like uh, like a great future. Uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. Okay, thanks, thanks a lot again, Sam, and uh, you know, good luck in the finals. Thank you.